Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum 2021 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. This is episode 27, talking about the Press Council and their complaints process with the Press Ombudsman, Peter Feeney. Welcome along, Peter. Thanks, Gerald. Peter, can we start just with, I suppose, with your origin story, as it were? Uh, Who are you? How did you end up at the Press Council? What exactly it is that you do there? Fair question. Um, I worked for 37 years for RTE. I was head of current affairs television from 1990 to 1997. And then I stayed in RTE until about 2012. I was head of broadcasting compliance in my last uh, 10 years in RTE. I left RTE at the end of 2012 and I joined the Press Council initially as a public interest member. And then after about a year, I succeeded John Horgan as the press ombudsman. And I've been press ombudsman now for seven years. It's a maximum term of nine years. So I'll be gone within two years. Is there an option for renewal for a second term or? No, it's it, it's three by three. I've had two three-year terms. I'm in my third three-year term. And I, I, I think uh, nine years is easily long enough anyway, I think for renewal of energy and just keeping in touch with what's happening in the industry. Because you know, and as all your members will know, it's an industry which is undergoing such rapid transformation that uh, I think it's important that the presumption that he or she is in touch as closely as possible with the current status of the industry. It's a difficult role to fill because I think the person who becomes the press ombudsman needs to understand how journalism operates and yet be independent of journalism. And it's difficult to find people in that role because obviously if you're working as a, currently as a journalist, the public might have a perception that you weren't independent became the press ombudsman. So I was kind of lucky in a way that I was out of active journalism for quite a long time. My predecessor, John Horgan, had been professor of journalism for more than a decade. So he, again, was out of active journalism at the time. But I, th- I think you need to understand how journalism operates. and But at the same time, realize that you're there primarily to serve the public. And that is people who have an issue with something that they find in the newspapers and are, are seeking some form of redress. And that's the main thing we do is we, we help the public navigate their way through problems they have in our newspapers, magazines, and increasingly in the online sector, because um, most majority of the complaints we get now are about something which has been accessed uh, digitally and not in hard copy. That applies both to newspapers, but also for online only operations like the journal. How has the COVID pandemic affected your work with the Press Council? I think probably no different than most other people. We closed down our offices. There's only two and a half people working in the press council, but we closed down our offices and we work remotely now. Um, Initially, uh, the the, the level of complaint has fluctuated. Initially, it went down, which surprised us um, because we thought there's more people at home, there's more people at their computers, they're more likely to fire in a complaint. But it has now risen, and this year, 2021, looks like being one of our busiest years ever. But interestingly enough, though we do get many complaints about COVID-related reporting, uh, the complaints about every other issue is also considerably up. So it seems to me the level of complaint this year is going to be quite high, and you can't put it down to people dissatisfied with the reporting of COVID. I'm wondering if it could be put down to a level... uh greater dissatisfaction because of COVID. I remember at the early stages, there was a, a graph that was going around about how public moods were were affected during the pandemic. 
And it starts off with everyone having a feeling of solidarity and togetherness. People actually feel quite good about it. But as time goes on, they start realizing, you know, it's not going to be just six weeks, as we were told at the beginning, or even six months. It's, it's going to go on. People become frayed. They become crankier. I wonder if that affects your job as well. People just that would have let things pass six months ago. They, they yeah, I, I'd say anecdotally, uh, I have no doubt, but that the tone of the complaints we're receiving have become angrier and perhaps less tolerant and a bit more indignant. And I, I think that probably reflects a public mood of sort of irritability and irritation with those in power. Uh, and uh, that spreads beyond COVID-related matters into other areas of complaint. And um, we're, we're seeing, too, I think, more effort being put into complaints as well. And those people are trying harder to explain why they're complaining and what they're complaining about. Uh, um, but uh, I think, I mean, I'm sure this is, this is obviously not just anecdotal, but I think there is a general sense of disgruntlement in the public at large, and this is possibly reflected in the number of complaints we've received. I have to say, though, that um, in my experience, newspapers, both national and local, have responded well to COVID, obviously in terms of keeping their newspapers being continued to be published despite having to work from home and despite the loss of revenue, commercial revenue and, and circulation revenue. And have also, I think, uh, taken seriously their responsibility to respond to complainants. Because in the first instance, we always ask complainants to get in touch with the editor. We link them to the editor and we give the editor two weeks to respond. And we've noticed a, we've noticed a significant improvement in the way in which the editors have responded to complainants trying to address their issues, particularly in local newspapers. There, local newspaper editors are actually very good at saying, you know, what is this complaint about? Has the person got a case? What can we do to resolve it? What lessons can we learn? National newspapers were less good than local, but I think we've seen improvement in national newspapers as well, as well in the last year or two that they're taking complaints more seriously and trying to address them at an early stage. And often a complaint can be dealt with, can be resolved amicably for both sides if it is addressed quickly, because often all it requires is a clarification or the publication of a letter or increasingly taking something down online. That's all that's required. So if that's all that's required, editors can, can quite often facilitate the resolution of a complaint. And if they do it quickly, I think the complaint is more likely to drop out of the process at that stage and say that's resolved. I suppose we should go through a little bit on the process of how the press council works as well. Well, the process is very straightforward. If a complaint comes to us, and 90% of our complaints now come in via email, via our website, um, a very small number come in the post anymore. Uh, if a complaint comes to us, we ask them in the first instance to talk, to communicate with their complaint to the editor and give the editor two weeks to reply. If the complainant isn't happy with the response that he or she receives, then uh, we get involved. And the complaint is assigned to our, our only case officer, Bernie Grogan, and it's her task to see if she can't achieve a resolution through conciliation. So she asks the complainant what he or she may want. She asks the editor what they might prefer to offer. And only if that isn't successful, then it goes to me for a formal decision. There are a couple of hurdles which a complaint must get over. The complaint must be about something which was published in a member publication, but that covers all national newspapers, most, re most regional newspapers, lots of magazines, and increasingly many online-only news services. So that's the first hurdle to overcome. The second hurdle is it must have been in the last three months of publication, which again, most complaints are about things which have been published in the last three months. And the third hurdle I, is that you have to show that you're personally affected 
And this knocks out some people. Though we took a decision some months ago that any complaint that related to COVID or to um, climate change, people didn't have to prove their person affected we accept that everybody is personally affected by COVID and by climate change so if the issues are either those two then that, that that's overcome immediately the last hurdle people need to overcome is there must be some possible evidence of a breach of the code because essentially what we do is we look at, at what was published look at the complaint look at the response from the editor and decide if it breached any of the 10 principles of the code 11 principles of the code um, if there's no possibility of it breaching any of the principles we have the, the right to say at a very early stage, no, we're not going to take on your complaint. There's no possibility of any of it being upheld. Um, and then just to finish off the process, if a, either the complainant or the publisher isn't happy with my decision, they can appeal to the full press council. There are limited grounds they can appeal on, but they're, they're, they're fairly wide. Can appeal to the full press council, which will then hear the complaint. 13 members of the press council will hear the complaint. If anybody... Is on the press council who is in any way is conflicted, you know, they might be a nominee of Irish Independent and complaints about the Irish Independent, they recuse themselves from that meeting. So usually kind of 11, 12 members of the press council will then consider the complaint uh, and uh, may overturn my decision or may uh, agree that my decision was the correct one. So public do get two kind of bites of the cherry of the decision, uh, my, my decision and then the council decision. The only penalty I should add, in case anybody doesn't know, is if a complaint is upheld, it must be published in full uh, with due prominence in the publication. And that means on the same page or further forwards in the newspaper, you can't bury it on page 27. If the complaint was, if the original article was on page six, you have to publish it on page six or further forwards. The only exception to that, exempt, exception to that is if it's on first page of a newspaper, we don't ask that decision to be published in the first page, we allow it to be published in the first four pages. But other than that, it has to be published. It also has to be published without commentary. So you can't say press ombudsman got it wrong or this is ridiculous, or whatever else it is. You have to just publish it and, and get on with it, which actually, in my view, is quite a deterrent because there is reputational damage for any publication if they have to publish a decision of the press ombudsman or publish a complaint. So editors do their absolute best to avoid having uh, complaints upheld. And it is really exceptional that an editor doesn't make proper submissions defending what they published, or in some cases acknowledging that uh, mistakes were made. One option is that I can find that an editor offered to take or took sufficient action to resolve a complaint. So sometimes a complaint will come in and the editor will say, well, listen, what you're doing effectively is you're disagreeing with the opinion in an opinion column. You can write a letter and we'll publish the letter. In exceptional circumstances, they may offer the, an op-ed as an alternative. So there are means of resolving complaints without a formal decision saying the code was breached or not. And one of them is if the editor offers a, sort of a right of reply or offers to take action, which is sufficient. Sometimes it is as minor as, you know, a, a minor inaccuracy and simply a clarification saying you know, it was the 11th of October, not the 7th of October, that kind of thing. It's, it's not of adequate significance to lead to a complaint being upheld. But sometimes it can be quite a significant matter. And if the editor offers a letter uh, or offers an op-ed, I think that goes a long way towards allowing the member of the public make his or her point uh, in a in 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 sense of contributing to a national debate. A uh, couple of questions just occurred to me listening to that. Uh, how does prominence work online? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, and it's in increasingly the 
issue of the fact that most journalism is now accessed online is creating problems for us because our model essentially is a model based on a printed newspaper. Um, what we say is that an editor is responsible for everything that he or she publishes in their publication, whether it's print or online. So the editor remains responsible. But in some instances, you know, well, all online is doing is it's pointing you towards a link. Now, if it points you towards a link, it's taking the editorial control away from that publication. So we won't accept a complaint about something which is linked by a member publication. But if it appears on the member publication online, then we treat it as a complaint. The complainant is asked to send in a copy of the article they wish to complain about. In the old days, that usually meant someone cut it out of the newspaper and put an envelope and sent it to us. But now it almost always means they just provide the link to the online version of it. And we have a problem there because in some instances, the online version isn't exactly the same as the printed version and isn't exactly the same as the version which was first put up online. Because as you know, it's very easy to adjust something online. And if you make a minor mistake online, you simply correct it as soon as your attention is drawn to it. And we don't have any requirement on publishers to annotate and inform uh, their readers that something online has been amended. Now, some newspapers do say when they amend it online, they say it's amended online. They very seldom say why uh, that's amended because the press council was involved, but uh, it does mean that sometimes when we get a complaint, we go to the link, what we find there is not the original article, but the amended article. And that does create a problem because the issue which may have already been addressed by the publisher, which is simply taking down the, uh, the offending piece or changing the offending piece, and in a sense, that is a bit unfair on complainants. I mean, in a sense, they should get satisfaction for knowing that the article has been amended. But I, I think they should be able to, where possible, put in a complaint which deals with the original article. If they got a screen grab, they're fine. Or if the uh, article hasn't been changed online, they're fine. But if it has been amended online, we're stuck with just what is available online. We can't ask the publication to give us the original version. We have to deal with the version that were given by the complainants. Do you think that's something that the press council should... I, I assume that, for example, the uh, court of practice, the, the nine points, the principles, are not set in stone. They, they are an evolving document. Is, no, we, yeah, yeah, you're right. We have what's called a code committee, and it's uh, chaired by Brendan Keenan of the... Uh, retired now of the Irish Independent, Independent Newspapers. And, uh, uh, and editors either attend or they send in uh, their representatives to meet. So the code can be amended. We amended a couple of years ago to include the reporting of suicide as uh, an issue because it wasn't up to that point. But our processes also can be amended, our complaints processes, in conjunction obviously with editors. And one of our ambitions is once we can get back into meeting in person is to have a meeting with uh, national and regional editors to talk about our process to see you know, what can be improved, what needs to be looked at. And the, the main thing I would say is just some sort of recognition that as we move more and more into a digital world that our processes need to reflect that. And I'll give you a very specific example. Um, if you make a complaint and your complaint is upheld and it's in the printed edition, it has to be published on the same page or further forwards. What does that mean digitally? Um, because if something goes up in the Irish Times online or the Irish Independent online or the Irish Examiner online or the Journal online, it is such a fluid 
publication that an article slips down the page, slips onto page two, slips from the first eight articles to the first 16 articles. So it's quite difficult to say you must publish it with equal prominence. So we have rules at the moment which don't really work, which say such things as, you know, it must be on your front page and must be maintained on your front page for 24 hours. And what does the front page mean on the journal, for example, because it doesn't have a front page. You just scroll down the journal and you keep on scrolling to their last article. Well, if you, if you enter the journal.ie, you get what's effectively a front page. The problem is most people don't arrive that way. Most people arrive by clicking on a specific article. So yeah. This is an additional problem. Yeah. So presumably you'd need something like, I'm thinking of, if you go to a guard, the Guardian and you read an article, at the bottom of virtually every single article, there's a little notice basically says, give us money. And they, they've got basically some computer codes, uh, HTML that, plants that at the end of every article. So presumably you would need to do something similar where you would have a clarification for a set period of time or something. And then a permanent clarification on the article itself saying this article is invented as well. Yes. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. What, what we would like is, I mean, more transparency, basically. We would like the people who access articles online to be aware that a complaint was received and the complaint was upheld and that this be... It's a requirement that if the article remains online, that this is annotated and the public are made aware of it. But you're right that dealing with uh, an article which uh, is current, i.e. in the last day or two, the public will still be able to access it. It may have been changed because of intervention by the complainant or by intervention by the press ombudsman's office. And this isn't, uh, the public aren't made aware of this at the moment. So one of the issues amongst many we would like to deal with is just how we can strengthen the public knowing that there is a complaints process which is available to the public, which does achieve some of the results the public want. Uh, but at the moment, it's simply too easy for the newspaper or, the, or journal, wherever else it is, to simply make that amendment and say nothing and the public are unaware that this process has been in place. So we will address that, but it has to be done in conjunction with uh, the um, with, with, with the publication. At the moment, for example, uh, Irish Independent is actually, when we say it has to be one of your first uh, eight stories. Uh, they're, they're good at holding it there for a period of time, but the journal can't do that because they have a system where their latest story always goes up first. So it's a sort of rotating. So what they have to do is they have to re-put up, as it were, the decision uh, uh, near the top every few hours, as it were, because they will have eight new stories in in that period. So it's, it's just it's to do with the flexibility of how online works. And I think we have to address it. But this, I have to say, too, this also now is increasingly the issue for uh, regional newspapers, because virtually every regional newspaper now has a reasonably active online version as well. And uh, upheld decisions need to be clearly available in the print edition and in the online edition if the original article was published both print and online. So we have some work to do uh, when the COVID restrictions are over to try and encourage editors to see that. I think this is in their interest too, because I think it's in the interest of all editors to have a complaints process which is effective. And uh, that's the only justification for press council. If our process isn't effective, there's no point in us being there. Uh, and as you know, uh, George, when the Press Council started back in 2008, one of the main motives for the foundation of the Press Council, for the establishment of it, was the, to stop legislation being passed by 
government to bring journalism, print journalism, in under the Department of Justice, which was seen to be potentially restrictive and potentially could lead to conflict with government and potentially conflict with interference by government. So an independent press council, independent press ombudsman, is in both the public interest, in my view, and also in publication, the public editor's interest. And uh, the more an effective one, I think, is in everybody's interest as well. I'm just wondering, uh, regardless of whether the code is amended, should, uh, as a matter of best practice, similar to what you see with a lot of US publications, should newspapers just and websites just adopt a practice of always annotating that there's been, you know, even if something matters, just, you know, the following was uh, edited to clarify or to fix a spelling error or whatever it makes, get into the habits. Yeah. I think I, I I would like that to be the case. I mean, if it's just a case of, say, putting out loan in Westmead instead of Roscommon, you know, I, I don't think that makes a great deal of difference if it's only something as minor as that. But if it's anything of significance, I think uh, there is a good argument to be made that uh, editors should fess up to the mistake and acknowledge it. And I think there's a, a confidence building in that because I think it shows that editors are receptive to having mistakes or inaccuracies pointed out and addressing it. Of course, a lot of the complaints we receive are actually not about the accuracy of some piece of information in the newspaper. They are about comments. They're about commentary pieces which say something and the complainant disagrees with that. But, you know, free speech is, is paramount and the freedom of expression is paramount. And a lot of the time, what the public are doing there is they're disagreeing with the views of the columnist. They will argue principle one, which is truth and accuracy. But there are facts and there are uh, commentary and the two are separate. Now, obviously, if you have a commentary, you can have a dispute about what are the facts. And we had a great example of that some years ago where the then Israeli ambassador objected to the Irish Times coverage of the Middle East and argued that the Irish Times coverage was factually inaccurate in, you know, who started the 1967 war, who was responsible for the massacre here or there. And we looked at it and said, these were primarily or exclusively, these were disputed facts there. So it's very hard to say which set of facts is right, which set of facts are right. It may depend on whether you have a Palestinian view or an Israeli view or an Arabic view or whatever else it is. So, you know, there are issues. I mean, every commentary piece has to get its facts right. But the interpretation of facts is where freedom of expression, where public debate often takes place. So in those instances, editors often offer to publish a letter which challenges the opinions of the columnists. And that's 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 the way public debate should take place. Now, sometimes, um, I'll give you a specific example too. Some years ago, uh, some of the traveler groups objected to an opinion piece in the Daily Mail, which was very strong. And the editor of the Daily Mail, the then editor of the Daily Mail, uh, offered to publish an op-ed of the same length as the original article and on the same page and said to the travelers, you, know, you write this article and uh, we will publish it without any restrictions other than the usual defamation restrictions which would have to apply and the travel group said no we want to have the complaint upheld that's our aim to have the complaint that it was uh, breached uh, uh, requirements in regard to prejudice upheld and I, I took the view and that is the offer by the editor was sufficient to address it because it was an opinion piece and the publication of an equal sized op-ed on the same page within a week I thought was a, a very good way of dealing with that complaint rather than to have the complaint upheld. Are there any circumstances where you could see asking that actually a, a clarification or a finding from the press council would end up on the front page? I can't do it. When the press council was established in 2008, the editors were afraid of something on the front page. I mean, in, in some instances, 
Um, I could see the argument that you would need to have a little box on the front page saying um, um, press council decision on page four. I mean, that might be a compromise. So rather than, particularly in a tabloid where there basically is only one story on the front page, it, I, I don't think we'll ever see the front page of the Daily Mirror or the Star of the Sun saying you know, press ombudsman upholds complaint. But there could be a box which draws their readers' attention to something which is published on page four or page three, wherever else happens to be. Interestingly enough, we did a little bit of research from years ago about front page articles uh, where complaints are upheld and almost always the decision is buried on page two not when I say buried it's published on page two or page four because I think there's plenty of evidence that people kind of read the page in front of them so pages one and page three page five are more read than pages two or page four page six but there's nothing I can do about that I mean I can't complain about a publication on page four if that's our rules uh first four pages so but i could see where um the uh the um the little box in front page might be attractive from my perspective we might be able to argue editors to, to do that some stage in the future I, I i should say though there are times just thinking again about opinion pieces where or, or you know where complaints are upheld on the basis of principle one which is truth and accuracy where the inaccuracy is of such a nature that the offer to publish a clarification or a letter or even an op-ed may not be sufficient that I think it's up to editors to get it right and I think there are occasions where they should simply themselves without recourse to us simply publish the correction and not wait for a process of complaints to be gone through because that inevitably takes time I mean if you make a mistake correct it and correct it quickly and correct it properly I, I think there's a lot to be said for that and I think that also helps to build public trust in publications that uh, if I see something wrong in my Irish examiner on a Tuesday and I see on a Thursday a correction, I say, that's good. That means the editor was awake to the possibility that something was wrong and got that publication and correction out quickly. I think that that's healthy. Um, and then subsequently, I could still uphold the complaint on the basis that the mistake was a, a significant complaint and the action taken was not sufficient to deal with it. Um, but I'd like to see them get the... Uh, it's, but it's a bit like you know, defamation proceedings. All editors are told by lawyers, if you acknowledge you got it wrong, you've lost your first argument in a court action and defamation, and that is that we didn't get it wrong. So there is a, a reluctance at times to uh, publish a clarification or an apology in some instances, because they fear that if it's subsequently two years down the road ends up in defamation, the defense of fair comment or the defense that we didn't get it wrong is no longer available to you. So it is a tricky area for uh, editors. And as you know yourself, lawyers are more and more involved now in in-house or externally giving advice to newspapers how to deal with complaints, how to deal with threats of defamation. So there's sort of a legal side to it now, which kind of goes past what might be the best journalistic consideration. The other thing that occurred to me just on, uh, not the same as the front page, but a lot of newspapers are now, for example, uh, have Facebook pages. Uh, one of the problems is then where your prominence on Facebook is out of your own hands. The algorithm decides what to share. Yeah. Sometimes it will share widely an article that might have an honest mistake, but then you put up the clarification and then the algorithm decides that's not as interesting. The whole area of publication and social media is, from our perspective, kind of unresolved at the moment. We will accept a complaint about the official Facebook page of a member publication. So for Sarah's Times Irish Independent Facebook page, that's fine. If an individual journalist puts something up on his, his or her own Facebook page, we won't accept a complaint about it on the basis that the editor of the newspaper that that journalist associated with had no 
involvement in whatever that was placed. So it is a tricky area and it's hard for the public to see what's the difference between something put up on Facebook on the Irish Times page and something put up by Fenton O'Toole who was identified with the Irish Times. Um, so at the moment we only deal with uh, social media if it's on the official Facebook page or, or Twitter page of the publication. And that does present a problem. And if we were to uphold a complaint, and we haven't done so yet, about something on the official Facebook page of the Irish Mirror or Sun or Star or Times, wherever else it is, um, how that how that how that upheld decision will be published would be a tricky issue for us, because you're absolutely right. Facebook aren't members of the press council. They don't answer to anything we want to say or do. So it would really would be quite tricky for us how we would resolve that. But it hasn't happened yet. We haven't upheld a complaint about something on a, the official uh, Facebook page of a newspaper or member publication. The other thing, of course, is uh, coming down the line at the moment is uh, an online safety bill um, being considered by the Iraq. That's, uh, potentially that could see the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland or its successor given a role not just in policing broadcast media, but also policing media online, which that presumably leads to what the Americans in, in, in cop shows call jurisdiction disputes. You're absolutely right. We've looked at the new proposed Media Authority of Ireland, which will replace the BAI, and we've spoken to the Department of Justice, and they certainly at the moment have no aspiration to encroach into the work that the press council does. So they're, they're leaving newspapers and the, and the digital version of newspapers outside of their scope. But if their scope includes, for example, which at the moment is outside their scope, and that is the uh, online edition of RTE isn't subject to the BAI, which is, you know, is, an, is a, a, a lacuna at the moment. But if the MAI gets off the ground and there is a new digital safety commissioner, he or she, there, there will be, I don't want to say territory disputes, but you can see uh, that there will be an overlap where you know they could legitimately say this is a concern of ours. And even though it's a member publication and it was published in the, um, in the print edition and in the online edition, but it, it spills over into their editions. We already do deal with uh, digital content if the digital content is on the Irish Times or Irish Independent uh, website. So we overlap into digital slightly already, but I can see sometime in the future there will be sort of territory disputes or or uh, some obfuscation on the margins. We already have it to a certain extent, for example, because um, the uh, if in all Ireland editions of newspapers, like say the Sunday World, they will have a Belfast edition as well as their edition in Dublin or their public. And um, the, you know, their Northern Irish edition is not part of the Irish Press Council, and it's also not part of our equivalent, which is Ipso, the British equivalent to our operation. So if you have a complaint about the Sunday World, we have to find out, was it published in the edition in the Republic, or was it just published in the edition in Belfast? And if it was just published in the edition in Belfast, then there's no regulator for it at all. So, you know, there are sort of boundary disputes at times about it. Uh, and we also have the problem, for example, with the Times UK, the London edition of the Times. They had, as you know, a print edition in Ireland up to a year or two ago, and they were members of the Press Council, and then the print edition stopped. But they still have, um, on their online version, an Irish section. So we will accept complaints about the online version of the Times, provided it is in the Irish section. And the 
UK IPSO equivalent will accept it if it was in the English or the national, as they were called, or, or Scottish editions, parts of their, of their website. So there are kind of boundaries which do overlap. And it's the nature of technology now that everything, you know, national boundaries are becoming increasingly meaningless in terms of um, in terms of, 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 of publication. That also raises an issue which I think is, again, one we have to address, and that is um, in the past, if something was published in newspaper, you could access it by going to the library and you know finding the newspaper from 10 years ago and you'd find the article with some considerable difficulty looking at microfilm or whatever else happens to be. Today, because of success of Google and extraordinary uh, achievement of Google, um, you can Google almost anything in a newspaper for the last 10 or 20 years. So it does raise significant issues about the right to be forgotten. And we get a regular but small stream of people who are seeking articles taken down which were published 5, 10, 20 years ago um, about court cases primarily, but they can be about other matters as well. And it is difficult enough to deal with those because our rule simply says, you know, it has been published in the last three months, but there is a right to be forgotten. And we have a pamphlet which we distribute, which we give out of asked. So, you know, you do have a right to be forgotten and it's up to the editor of the publication to look at your rights under this and make a decision whether or not uh, material should be changed or not. Some newspapers, of course, newspapers of, of the record are very slow to change their archive. And I can understand that too, because it's important in years to come that there is a, a proper archive of what was published 10, 20 years ago. Other newspapers are, are more relaxed about it and say, well, you know, we'll take down the article or we'll amend the article or we'll take your name out of the article, but leave it up. And, you know, you can see how um, if I have a prison record or I was convicted of something 10 years ago and I've led an exemplary life since that I, I may well have a right to be forgotten. It may well be that matters should be taken down after 10 years. So it is a tricky area. It's not an area we get involved in because we have a strict rule about three months publication. And you know, some complaints will say, well, that's not fair because the article is still available five years later, 10 years later. The three months thing doesn't actually mean anything to us. And we have to acknowledge that is the case, but they do have some rights and the right to be forgotten. And I'm, I'm not sure whether um, and you know, a safety commissioner may not find himself or herself involved in that area because um, some of the issues will not be ones which are, are have been put up for the first time the last few months. They may go back years and they may have to deal with you know, a backlog going back as long as Google has been in existence. We've had examples of guys who say they haven't got jobs and they think it's because their prospective employers have Googled them and come up with uh, material. And I'll I, I give you an example of this, going back to my days in RTE, we had, uh, RTE had a documentary series about 18-year-olds after they're leaving cert going out to Spain for their two weeks holiday or a week's holiday and misbehaving. And a particular young man said to us, he now is a university graduate and he couldn't get a job. And he thought it was simply because if you Googled his name, up came an RTE documentary, which had him being drunk in, in Spain and he wanted to take him down. And RT likes to keep as many of its uh, archive programs available to the public as possible. So RT was very lucky to take it down. What we did was we took his name out of the list of people in the program. So you wouldn't encounter, you wouldn't get to that documentary if you Google his name anymore. Now, obviously, Google had to take it down as well, too. So it's not just the original publisher taking it down, but also Google. But at least we were able to address it in some way. But you have very difficult ones. I mean, we got a complaint about a man whose son had the same Christian name and surname as himself. That son was moving from primary school to secondary school, he was 12 years of age. 
And the father was concerned that if the boy's new classmates Googled this boy's name, up would come his father's conviction for a crime 20 years earlier and the boy would be bullied or, or teased about this. And you, know, you can understand that concern. And as far as I was aware, the man had led an exemplary life ever since. So you could see he did have a case. And under right to be forgotten, I think editors have to take seriously the possibility that you know, it, it's, it is unfair to keep things up forever, as it were. But we also have a problem with, and you mentioned there, if a local newspaper carries uh, a conviction for drunken driving, and there was a reporter in court on the day and it's in the newspaper. That's absolutely fine. But if that person appeals his conviction and six months later on appeal, the conviction is overturned and there isn't a journalist there on the day, the newspaper won't then carry the news that John Murphy was convicted a year ago of drunken driving, but the conviction was overturned a year later in, in the district court, whatever that happens to be. When that happens, it is primarily due to the fact that you know, there aren't that many journalists available for local newspapers and every court can't be covered. And it's just bad luck that there wasn't a journalist there on the day of the appeal. In those instances, almost always editors say, you know, you have a fair point. What we'll do is we will publish a piece next week pointing out that the conviction was overturned. Of course, the editor then has to check that the guy's telling the truth and that it was overturned and the guy isn't making it up that it was overturned. And he won't have a journalist to go and ask because there may not have been a journalist there, but you know, he'll have to go and check court records, etc. So, I mean, you can see how it is actually unfair if someone has a conviction overturned that the original conviction is there on the web forevermore, but the overturning isn't there on the web. So you can see how that is a, 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 you know, just a question of being fair to people. In addition to the uh, social media uh, laws that are coming along. There's also the Commission on the Future of Media in Ireland. Would there be anything in particular you'd expect to see from that that would impact the Press Council? Well, I mean, clearly the industry is in considerable difficulty. And I mean, your freelance members know that better than anybody else, that uh, uh, there's less stuff being commissioned, there's less journalists to write stories, there's less journalists to act as sub-editors, etc. And all of that impacts on the quality of journalism. And any measures which can be taken, which makes it easier for journalism, the better. I mean, journalism itself isn't under threat. It's the platforms which are under threat. And uh, obviously, we have to deal with issues like whether print long, uh, investive journalism in print works as well online. But a practical measure which we have suggested to the Commission, and we've got a good feedback, I don't know if it'll be there or not, is that... Um, when people are considering going down the defamation route and go and talk to their solicitors, it is our view that the client should be informed and solicitors should be required to, be, to inform their clients that there is the option of the press council and press ombudsman first. It doesn't stop your legal constitutional right to access the courts if you wish to do so. But as a first step, I think people should be aware that they can have matters addressed by the press ombudsman's office or the press council's office. There is equivalent in uh, family law where journalists, where, sorry, where solicitors are obliged to inform clients of the possibility of using mediation first for going down into the courts. And we would like to see the same equivalent uh, for uh, solicitors. The problem with that, of course, and we all know that, is there's no money in the press council. You're not going to get any award if you win. And therefore, solicitors have less incentive to recommend that to their clients because they're less likely to get paid for their work. But we would like to see a requirement that um, all clients who go to solicitors and defamation issues are they're informed firstly, or they have to be informed that there is the alternative of trying the press council route. You don't have to take it. If you want to go and sue a newspaper, you're entitled to go and sue a newspaper. But I mean, we're aware, as, as every other journalist and every other journalist organization, that the defamation, cost of defamation are in the 
is so hugely out of kilter with other countries that it is hugely damaging to the resources available to journalism. And it is a huge threat to journalism. And I know many regional editors who would say to me, and I'm sure they say to you, and that is, if we lost one major defamation action, we would fold. We simply couldn't afford to meet the costs of it. And you, know, you say, well, haven't you got insurance? We have insurance, but the cost of reinsuring after a claim is can be huge. And also, we may have to carry a very considerable proportion of the initial costs initially, even if we have defamation insurance. So it's 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 a, it's it's a permanent threat over journalism, and therefore it does have, a, I think, a, a sensorial effect on some measure. That is, they can't afford to take the risk, so you have to take you know take it out. It's just not worth the risk, and that's damaging for investigative journalism. It also doesn't recognise that journalism is a human activity, and mistakes are made. They're not made out of malice or they're not made out of neglect. It's just the nature of it. You're up against deadlines and you get something a bit inaccurate. If if you can correct it, you know, what is the loss to the person's reputation that requires him or her to get 10,000 euros or 50,000 euros? Whereas a, a good clarification, a good correction, uh, a quick one, seems to me to address the reputational loss rather than having to go to court five years later and getting 50,000 euros at that stage. So I mean, I think there is a major issue and I just hope that the, the council does recommend significant moves on the reform defamation law. But it's, a, it's an act which had a built-in five-year review, a compulsory built-in five-year review, and it's an act which is now more than 10 years old and that five-year review hasn't taken place yet. So I wouldn't hold my breath. I'm reminded often it's the case that it costs just as much to win a defamation case, uh, defending it successfully as it does when you when you lose it. It's, lawyers still have to be paid. Yeah, and editors, local editors have said to me, we're no longer going to automatically give the guy 2,000 euros or 5,000 euros to go away, even if the legal costs would be the two or 5,000 euros straight away, because we can't afford to do it because it is a, a dripping away of resources. You could do it once or twice, but you can't do it on a constant basis. We have to look at it and say, you know, should we at least mount a defense? Because there's a really good chance the guy will go away when he realizes we are going to defend this. But there are going to be a couple of thousand, maybe more, legal costs in just going that one step. Now, a lot of the national newspapers have in-house lawyers who do that now anyway. But if you're a local newspaper, you certainly don't have access to in-house legal expertise. You've got to go to your local solicitor. And therefore, you're going to incur a cost if he or she has to prepare a response to it. But you can't afford to simply give in simply because uh, the costs are so terrible, because it does inhibit journalism. It does also mean that Journalists who have written something and believe it is right find their editors saying, no, I, I think you're probably right, but I can't stand over it because for 2,000 euros or 5,000 euros, this will go away. And therefore, we're going to say we got it wrong and give the guy 2,000 or 5,000 euros. So that does inhibit journalism and it does affect the morale of journalists too. Peter Feeney, thanks for joining me. And to everyone listening, uh, stay safe and take care. This has been the Freelance Forum podcast with Jared Cunningham. The forum is brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sectoral Learning and Development Programme. Music by podsummit.com, released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. Jared Cunningham, thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe.